0: Well, open your scriptures today to 1 Peter, and we want to continue in our study of 1 Peter. And by the way, uh, related to 1 Peter, starting today, we now have on the podcast, the audio podcast, the 1 Peter studies. They're not corresponding to this particular week. They, today we began with the first of the First Peter studies that, uh, that we gave, which was back in January, because I wanted to, to disconnect the podcast from where we were on any given week. But from now on in the podcast, the audio, uh, people on a Sunday can follow through the extended teaching times uh, whereas on during the week, Monday through Friday, on the podcast form, the audio of those daily ten, eleven-minute teaching times have been available for quite some time. But uh, but the audio of the extended expositions on Sunday morning are now available in the same podcast forms, uh, both through Apple Podcast and and uh, the others that we've been that we've talked about. So. Anyway, I just wanted to let you know that that's going on. I had made an announcement about that on the Facebook as well, but uh, just let you know that uh, that perhaps God would use that as well for people that are saying, hey, it's Sunday, we want to have a more, or some other time, we want to have a more extended opportunity to sit and study the Word. And so these, I don't know how long I speak on Sunday mornings. Uh, uh, Dwayne has been very gracious not to draw it to my attention and say, hey, a little longer, you know, but uh, whatever that length is, that's what shows up on these, uh, will show up in these podcast forms. Well, anyway, getting back. 1 Peter chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading today in verse 13, some verses that we began to look at last week. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Authority is Fear God and honor the emperor. Let's pray together and we'll turn attention to these verses. Father, thank you for a chance to be together today, to have access to your word. Thank you for superintending in history to make the God-breathed words available to us. And if that was not enough that your Holy Spirit promises to carry out a teaching ministry to us as your children. So, Lord, illumine our hearts this day that we'd understand what you've taken the time to say from all of eternity. Help us to understand its applications in our actions and our attitudes and our beliefs. And then, Lord, enable us as we step out in obedience to conform to your truth. Well, thank you ahead of time for that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Quick review as we're in this portion of the second chapter of First Peter. We've been talking really since verse eleven about learning how to live as what the ESV translates as sojourners and exiles in a fallen world. That we we don't belong we're here, we belong here in the sense God's commanded us to be here, but we don't belong here because our true homeland is different. So we are we are foreigners living in an area, sojourners and exiles. And Essential to that understanding is God's command to you and I to live differently from the culture into which he's placed us. He's placed us in these cultures, but he says, I placed you there to live differently. Interact with the people, live in it. So God is saying, I didn't leave you here so you'd go off on a mountainside somewhere. You're, you're here interacting with the people Interacting in the social context in which I placed you. But you're not fitting in with it. You're there, you're interacting, but not fitting in. This very non-conformity is part of the witness why God's left us here. It's part of the light in the darkness reality that the scripture alludes to frequently in the New Testament. Romans 12.2, just a classic example of the command. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Well, in these verses, 11 to 17, we've been examining uh, examples of that culture contrast, which is meant to be at the heart of this light in the darkness. In verse 11, we were talking about the contrast of abstaining from the passions of the flesh, being a people who are ultimately driven by something different than what's driving the people in the world. And the passions of the flesh covers that whole range of things that we looked at. And he reminds us in that challenge, by the way, that ultimately the passions of the flesh are at war, is the terminology used, it's at war with your very soul. The second thing we looked at in verse 12, he says, I want you to be a people whose contrast is shown by committing yourself to be honorable in your conduct and committing yourself to good deeds. I don't, I don't want you just simply not following the flesh. I, want, I don't want you leaving yourself neutral. I want you, in a positive way, committing yourself to both honorable conduct and good deeds. Last time, beginning in these verses I read to you today, in verse 13, we were talking about the third of these culture contrasts, and that is how we respond to governing authorities. And he says, as my redeemed children now, I'm wanting you to respond to the governing authorities under which you find yourself in a particular way. I want you to be subject to them. The Greek word hupotasso, which translated most of the time in the context, means to have a willing obedience or compliance to one in authority over you. It can also, in certain circumstances, have the idea of adapting to it. But that's the essence of it, being, being submissive. To be subject. And he says, I want you to be subject, as part of this classic contrast issue, I want you to be subject to the authority structures you find within the fallen world I placed you in. And if you go further in the second chapter and then into the third chapter, you'll notice that he's talking about the authority structures that are the civil authority structures. And then he turns attention to the authority structures encountered within the work life of people. And then he gets into the third chapter and he talks about the authority structures encountered within the framework of the family and the home. So the overall arching issue, uniting all of them, is this issue of an attitude, hupotasso, that we are committed to be submissive to. What we've learned so far from our study last week is that, number one, fallen mankind basically has the opposite response to authority at every level fallen mankind is rebellious toward authority innately rebellious toward it uh, people fallen mankind tend to be disrespectful tend to be bitter toward they tend to be hostile toward authorities in general that's their orientation anyone with an eye that looks objectively has to say yep amen that's been my experience from childhood onward that's that's basically how people are oriented They're they're that direction. God says as a result of that, most people's obedience and alignment with authority has to be coerced. They do it only because you force it, not because they inherently, innately, want to be that way. And that tells you a lot about the nature of the human being, doesn't it? Uh, And the nature of natural man and woman. Uh, And I believe that's also why he identifies this third contrast of being subject to governing authorities is one of those critical ways to be a light in the darkness because you will simply be a head-scratcher for people if this is the way you are. <laughs> They're going to look and say, wait, I've got nothing in my life that associates with this. You know, everything I've ever known, all the people I've ever known, basically have to be coerced in one way or another to do, to do something over to the authorities that are over them. Last week, we also learned that we are to be subject to patasso. We are to be subject for God's sake, not for the sake of the people in the authority position. Or to put it another way, God says, I'm wanting you to have this approach because you have your eye on me, not the person. Not the person in a particular position. Why? Because it's the position that's the issue here before God. There'll never be any righteous, upright people that left to themselves, the more you knew about them, you'd say, oh, well, I just want to trust them and let them be an authority. <laughs> the more you knew, the, more, the less you'd have confidence about people in different positions, and the more excuses you'd find to be disrespectful and not submissive to it. And so God says, I want you to get your eyes off the people, I want you to get your eye on the structures which is why that word he's chosen here is so important for us. Is once you get your eye on the structures, and I want you to be submissive, subject to. For my sake, not for theirs. Now it's going to help them to have you subjective to them, subject. But but it's my sake. You keep your eye on me, and understand the reason I want you to do that is to understand there is no human authority, human structure that's in place that I haven't permitted. Doesn't mean he's always happy with what they're doing, but nothing's there except that he permits. Think of how he puts it in Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority, and that's the terminology here in 1 Peter, there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Whoever resists the authorities resists what God's appointed, and those who resist incur judgment. Now, why? Why does God say that? Why does he say, I want you to have your eye on me, and I want you to be submissive, kind of independent of who's in the position per se, but because they're in the position, I want you to be subject to it. Why does he say that? And the answer, theologically, biblically, is this, that human authority structures are part of what the theologian calls God's common grace, general grace to humanity. Now, what's that about? That means whether somebody has turned to Christ or not turned to Christ, God has done certain things as a common grace to humanity. He lets the rain fall. He brings the seasons and so forth. You see, there's certain common grace realities that even an unfallen, even a fallen person who's not repented and believed benefits from. Ultimately, they may not thank God for it, but nonetheless, God is saying, I'm doing this to mankind in general. So how do the governing authorities fit into that? Why why is that considered a common grace of God? And the answer to that, biblically, is that when we begin to see what happens within mankind, going all the way back to Genesis, we see Adam and Eve in the garden. We see them sin. We see God provide an answer for that sin, but one of the consequences of the sin is they were cast out of the garden. We get into Genesis chapter 4. We discover... The very first family, it isn't just they didn't get along. The very first family, fratricide. Cain murders his brother Abel. And then the further you get into the fourth chapter, you discover that in that period of time, by the way, when there were no governing authorities, no social structures outside of the family, uh, you find by two or three generations following Cain that the world had spiraled down Into a place filled with violence, vengeance, the lack of justice. Cain was concerned after he murdered his brother that somebody might murder him in response. And God gave him the mark and whatever, you know, a lot of there's tied to that. But two generations after him, Lamech boasted about the fact that when somebody actually insulted him, I mean didn't do more than that, insulted him, that he killed them, and he promised he would kill 70-fold anybody that did that to him. So what happens? Vendettas, vengeance in the human condition of fallen mankind, does not make mankind move toward justice. It makes mankind move toward vengeance. And as you go through those opening chapters leading up to the time of the flood, What you discover is that humanity swirled downward and downward and downward and downward as the natural consequence of that sin. To the point you got to Genesis chapter 6, and God is looking over the world, and he says, this whole world has degenerated, and the effect of that is anarchy. There was nowhere God looked at, there wasn't violence, there wasn't murder, there wasn't degeneration. It's why, by the way, following the flood, God institutes social structure. He institutes civil authority. He also institutes home authority, independent of whether somebody's saved or not. He institutes it as part of the human condition. Why? As Romans chapter 13 puts it, he puts the sword into the hand of that civil authority structure. And why does he do that? Because obedience has to be coerced. If you don't have a civil authority there to do that, vengeance becomes the coercion. And vengeance degenerates quickly into injustice. That's why, by the way, there is not a single episode in history that we have any record of, of where anarchy did not degenerate into violence. Now, the amazing thing to me, and I'm a an historian, but the amazing thing to me about that is despite that 100% body of evidence, most of mankind inclines themselves to believe in a utopian sort of idea. You know, people are basically good, and the, the less structure that's there, the better. Then really, what we really need to have them in is when they're, you know, they, they're in places where there's no other higher authority so that their innate goodness would come out. Uh, Brothers and sisters, that's not the way it works. And you say, well, you know, they were pretty primitive in Genesis chapters 4 to 6. You know, what do you expect? But today we're pretty sophisticated people. Yeah, tell me one place in the world currently where civil authority has broken down, that is not filled with violence and injustice that's why very quickly in, in areas where government breaks down, other countries try to come in and try to provide at least a little structure because the true condition of humanity reigns there. Instead of humanity responding and saying, oh, here's our opportunity, now we can love one another and you know, live in the age of Aquarius. You know that, That's not what happens. It never happens. Instead, you, the civil authority breaks down and people find that as the opportunity to finally get the vengeance on the people that they didn't you say, that's not a very good picture, Gary. No, it's not. But I didn't come up with it. God did. Okay, coming back to common grace. Civil authority structures in society were instituted by God as a common grace. It is the sword of coercion that helps to hold society from that great degeneration. And you say, well, the authorities don't always use the sword properly. Yeah, that's true. They don't. But the fact of the matter is, When Lamech, representing humanity in general, every person like Lamech was willing to do 70-fold injustice to any wrong that they felt was done to them, even when civil authority does things that aren't so good, the the consequences are vastly less than are true in anarchy. Do you follow that? And so God says, listen, that's what's going on. It's my God-assigned role for civil authority. I'm not always pleased with how the civil authorities work. And God uses civil authorities to then war against other civil authorities to try to bring about some sorts of broader justice at times over history. But He says, You, as my people, the last thing I want you doing is being part of the group that undercuts authority because I know where that goes. That doesn't go to people turning to Christ. It goes to degeneration and violence. So, as my people, I want you living in the light. I want you, light in the darkness, I want you to be a people demonstrating being subject. Now, let's move on. He says in verse 16, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. And by the way, this is within the context of the broad issue of subjection, cupitaso. Sometimes people pull individual verses out of this portion of 1 Peter, wrongly so. The whole theme from verse 13 on through verse 7 in the, second cha- in the third chapter is all hupotasso. It's about being subject. God says, listen, as you're doing this, as you're carrying out this third command to be subject to civil authorities, I want you to do it. Understanding the fact and acting on the fact that actually you're free in Christ. Now, what's all that about? Well, let's look at it. We're to submit to authorities to cooperate with that general grace that God has created in the civil society, but do so realizing I'm actually a free man to be free means this that i understand now as a redeemed child of god i am ultimately under god's authority not the authority of the civil authorities i'm i'm not i'm not a victimized slave i'm a redeemed made free person in christ and so it makes a difference in your attitude doesn't it in one case, you grovel on your knee. In the other case, you make choices. And God says, I want you making choices. I want you, in response to the government, to realize you're doing this as a free man or woman. Set free in Christ. Christ set you free. You shall be free indeed, as the scripture puts it. I've set you free. He didn't set us free so that we could live desolate lives. He made it set us free so we could live in obedience and surrender to him. Ultimately, fulfilling his purpose and plan. And by the way, we make choices. Jesus made this sort of choice. He sort of picture. think of his response to Pilate in John 19. Uh, So Pilate says to Jesus, uh, You will not speak to me? Do you not know I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus says, You have no authority over me at all unless it was given to you from above that's the real authority. therefore you delivered me over to you as greater sin. I'm free, I'm under your authority but I'm a free man under that authority. I may have to consequence I may have to live the consequence of your choice but I'm doing it as a free man. God says, I want you having that attitude. You don't approach being subject to authority as if you were a powerless slave. You live as a free man. You make a choice to cooperate. Not a coerced, forced decision. Do you follow the distinction? It's about attitude. It's about perspective. That's why it's a light in the darkness. Basically, everybody else has to be coerced. You say, I don't to be coerced. I'm free anyway. I'm making the decision my master my my father has said i've common grace i've made these authority structures the sword it's a way despite fallenness and sinfulness to try to create to hold in place some of the disaster of humanity's sin and i'm going to make a choice to cooperate with god in that way i'm not forced i'm i'm free cooperate And as I do it, I'm reminding myself all the time who's really in charge. Who's really in charge. Jesus did that in the John 19 passage I read to you. He reminded, he didn't have to remind himself, he already knew those things, but he said these things so we would see. He says, you don't have any authority unless my father gave it to you. I mean, he's the one in charge. No matter how intimidating a human authority figure may be, they have no authority no power, unless the Father gave it to them. You say, well, I don't know why God gave it to them. Well, I don't either, except he did. All right, uh, He had his own purposes in that. And he says, listen, I know who's really in charge, though. And ultimately, my choices of being subject to all fall under the issue that I'm first and foremost subject to him. Not the authority structure, but to him. Now, what does that mean? I'm his servant first. I'm a subject of the authority. I'm the servant of the king. If the human authority structure commands me to do something in conflict with what God commands, he's the one in charge. God, not the human authority. Which means, in that sort of case... God always overrules the human authority. God says, the human authority says, I, you do this or don't do this. And God says, well, if they do this, that's sin. If they don't do this, it's sin. You follow God. He is the one in authority. You're a free man of the civil authority when the civil authority steps outside the bounds of biblical truth. I was thinking of Acts chapter 4 in the picture of this. Remember the apostles were before the Sanhedrin, and they were saying, we don't want want you talking anymore to anybody about Jesus here. You're just creating problems for us. And their response was this. And so they called them, they charged them, this is the Sanhedrin, not to teach or speak at all in the name of Jesus, but Peter and John answered them and said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you, rather than to God, you have to judge. And by the way, what that means is that you... You have to decide what you're going to do in response to us listening to God, not you. You have to judge what you're going to do in light of that. We've already made the choice. We listen to God. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That's the principle, you see it. Who's really in charge? I'm free. He's called, my true master has called me to be subservient to in the right sense the civil authorities and their role in the society and the checking of sin but if they say to do something contrary to what God says I may have to suffer the consequence of their decision what they're going to do in response to it Jesus was put to the cross you remember but there may be a consequence but then that's part of God's plan too like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abendo I I, I may end up in the fire but that's God's plan too so be it. But the issue of who will I obey, remember Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego saying to Nebuchadnezzar, it's not you we're obeying. <laughs> we're we're obey God in this regard. Do what you have to. We realize who's really in charge, that we're really free of civil authority in the times where civil authority conflicts with God's word. But then he says, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. (laughs) He says, I've I've given you this principle, and it's a truth, eternal truth, but understand, this you have to be real cautious with this, uh, because it's easy to abuse the principle. Uh, He said, you can begin to think you're doing something for me by opposing a civil authority, when what the civil authority is talking for you to do doesn't absolutely put you in conflict with me and my word. What do I mean by that? We decide to sort of resist civil authority when the laws and dictates are not in clear conflict with God's word, but they tend to be in clear conflict with my own political philosophy. Or, they tend to be in conflict with my own economic philosophy. Or, my whim of the moment, depending on how driven you are by underlying philosophy or by what you feel like on a given day. <laughs> but uh, we can fall into the trap of saying, well, I, I don't like what they're saying to do. And therefore, I know God's given me this out. I don't have to obey him. And God's saying, I'll oh, be real careful with this freedom I've given you because I didn't give you the freedom to not carry out hupotasso in the context of where they you don't like what they said. <laughs> I gave you this freedom in the place where there's a conflict between my word as the King of Kings and the word of this civil authority. So be very cautious. Then in verse 17, he says, Listen, I want you to not only be subject to, but I want you to be honoring of these civil authorities. Honor everyone love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Once again, all of this is under the Hupitaso context. That's all the main theme, the thread going through it all. He says, listen, your attitude toward the civil authority is important to me. Not only your action of being subject to, your attitude's important to me. The fact that you honor them is a point of contrast with a fallen world. It will mark you out as countercultural. Why? Because it doesn't take much observation to know that, by and large, fallen humanity is dishonoring and disrespectful toward anyone in authority that, that they can get away with. I mean, that should not come as a surprise to anybody. Just, what have you found? That's, that's the way it is. If they can get away with it, (laughs) they, and I say, well, God is saying, I want you to be an honoring person, not just a subject person. Uh, Because honoring is important to God. Think of Exodus chapter 20. Honor your father and your mother. God says, hey, there's an authority structure in the home. I want the, I want the child to honor, not only obey, honor that father and that mother. In Ephesians 5.33, he says to the husband, the wife to the husband, he says, and let the wife see that she respects her husband, in the words the same, to honor. He says, so within the structure of the home, I want the child, you know, not only obeying but honoring. I want the wife not only submitting to, but respecting and honoring a husband. Later on in 1 Peter 3, we'll get to that, Lord willing, someday. He says uh, in verse 7, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, he says, And I ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you. And the word is the same, honor, those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly. God says, part of what it means to be my child and living out in the light is that you're an honoring type person, respecting. And the, uh, the Greek word translated honor here is temeo, and it can be translated honor, respect. The New International Version translates it pretty consistently by the word respect. The King James Version, and here the English Standard Version, uh, and the New American Standard Version, more often than not translates it with the word English word honor, although not exclusively so. But it's the same Greek word. That's why I was using passages where in one case it said respect, in another case it said honor. It's the same Greek word. It means to tamau, tamau means to recognize the value of and the essential dignity of another, to honor, to see another as worthy of esteem. And notice what he says. Honor everyone. You now, my first inclination before God is, okay, give me the list. Who do I have to be this way toward? <laughs> and who, who, who can I avoid being this way to? And God says, okay, here's your list. Everyone. Ah, aren't there any clauses in here, Lord? Uh, no. No, it's a, one of these straightforward little couplets. Honor everybody. Honor everyone. Honor everyone independent of their socioeconomic status. Honor everyone independent of their looks. Honor everyone independent of their mental capabilities. Honor everyone independent of their strength. And on and on the list could go. Uh, Do you see people as God sees them, is what this comes down to. That everyone has value. Our culture is one where very few people show respect to everybody. They use the terminology a lot, but then they don't live it out. In fact, here's the the irony of our culture, and it's not just our current culture, it's always been true of fallen mankind, but here's the irony. They like to talk about respect and honor, but their worldview makes such a response illogical and inconsistent. Now, what, what do I mean by that? Let me give you two examples. One of the dominant worldviews, the way people make sense out of life in our culture, is what, well, what we could best call a naturalistic scientific view. That if you're really trying to make sense out of humanity, you look at them and say, well, basically, they were, they're a chance collection of atoms. There's no real intrinsic value there because you're left with nothing but that. If you take a pure scientific naturalistic view, because you don't have, you're not, God's not in the equation anywhere. So you're trying to say, well, where'd this person come from? And you say, well, here here are some of these uh, natural natural processes that played them. Then you say, okay, now that you see that, why do you respect them? And the answer is, I'm not quite sure. Uh, So it puts you in a dilemma, you follow? Or uh, the predominant view of hedonism, which characterizes so many people's lives, Hedonism, the logic of it, says people are valuable in use, valuable to the degree they're useful to satisfy our desires. If, if they interfere with our desires, then I'm not going to honor them. I'm not going to honor them. Uh, the fact of the matter, and I'm convinced of this, only a biblical worldview has any logic to it for why we should honor everyone. No other place is going to give it to us. The Bible says all people are intrinsically valuable and worthwhile, needing to be respected and honored because they are a creation of God, in his image. Psalm 139, he knit them together in a womb. Nobody's here except by his permission. Therefore, God's word says everybody's intrinsically valuable to society. And I can be consistent to the word to respond to people that way. Which means I look at somebody that the world says, well, let's use some examples. I don't mean to step on anybody's toes here, but here's an example. How about the unborn? God says they're intrinsically valuable. (laughs) Honor them. Well, why wouldn't you honor them? Because they get in the way. Because their presence interferes with part of my strategy of life. So I get rid of it. I'm born. No, not really respecting or honoring, is it? Or somebody says, "Well, here's the old here. People are really getting older, losing some of their capabilities. Now they're really a dredge on society, costing us money. You know, we can't really respect those people because they no longer make the contributions. Sort of hedonism, right? The people only only valuable to the degree that they satisfy our desires or help to satisfy it. If they start to be a cost, not a benefit, if the ratio changes, then we don't honor them anymore in quite the same way. Or how about the unlovely? You know, you know they, they don't add to the decor quite the same way. So, you know, not, not quite as valuable to us. How about the sick? How about the poor? You have no logical basis to carry out any kind of universal honoring and respecting apart from the biblical foundation because the logic of the others. And people will come back to me even on the university when I've argued that with them and they'll say, well, yeah, we understand that, but not everything has to be logical. (laughs) I thought to myself, well, that's true. That's at the heart of the problem here. You're living an illogical life inconsistent to the things you say you really believe because you find what you really believe doesn't work. And so you... Modify in action what you do because your real beliefs ultimately don't work. You can't live consistent to them. Isn't it wonderful that the believer can live consistent to the truth and it works? We can be sane, brothers and sisters. We don't have to have two levels of experience, one which is sort of the theories and the other is how we live. There can be the integration of it. We can see life. As it is. Well, God says I want you to honor everybody. I had a lot more to say, not enough time to say it today. One last thing on this. How terrible, soberly listen to this, How terrible and dishonoring to God is it when a believer is not honoring others? We're the only ones with any consistent reason to do so. (laughs) How disruptive of God's great intention of light in the darkness by leaving us here as his people is it when a believer is like everybody else in the way that they respond to people? Here's our light in the darkness, brothers and sisters. We can live consistent to who we are in Christ. We can live consistent with the way we were created because we live consistent with the one who created us. And that consistency leads to honoring. And when that doesn't happen, what message do you have for the world? If you live controlled by your passions instead of in that contrast God is looking for, what message do you have for the world that's trapped into slavery to all kinds of passions? If you, what message, if you don't live consistent to that honorable conduct and good deeds, what message do you have for the world really who find it very difficult to live honorably and to have good deeds? And if you do not live consistent to the being subject to, What possible message, why would anybody listen to you? Because you've got nothing to offer them that they don't, if you have to be coerced, what have you got for them? And if you do not live as an orientation toward honoring, how are you any different? What message do you have for them? Especially because there's not a man or woman out there who doesn't desire to be honored and respected inherently for who they are, not for what they do. Who would love nothing more than the wonder of being loved for who they are. And I grant you, the world uses terminology like that, but it's empty terminology because it doesn't work out in life. So they hold it out as the aspiration, but it's never lived out with consistency. God says, I'll make you a new creation as you respond to the gospel. I'll have my Holy Spirit indwell you. I'll help you grow. And you, because of that, can begin to live consistent with what I've laid out for you. How terrible when we don't. Sometimes it's my uh, job to not avoid passages of scripture that aren't so easy to listen to. And I, before the Lord, Say, I don't enjoy doing it, but I'm going to applaud for it, and we're going to look at these things and let it fall where it falls. And So that's not an apology to you. It's an admission to you. I don't like hearing it any better than you do sometimes. But I need to, because every word out of the mouth of the Lord, and that means all of this, is how we live. It's how we live. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for a chance to be together and to praise you, to worship you, and in a special way to acknowledge mothers in this day. Would you be at work in us, Lord? In all of these things, we are so mindful of how far short we fall. But help us to see, as Paul saw in Philippians 3, that we we can recognize that but set our minds on where you want us to be and press on to get there. Help us to press on, Heavenly Father. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless, my friends.